Hello and welcome to the second episode of Over the Farm Gate, brought to you by Farmers Guardian and the CLA. We're your hosts for this week, me, Farmers Guardian editor Ben Briggs. And me, FG News editor Olivia Midgley. What have we got this week, Ben? This week, we take a look at issues around the supply chain and also at food security, the latter of which has been brought into short focus by this COVID-19 pandemic. It's not too long since Farmers Guardian was reporting on comments from Treasury advisor Tim Lunig that the UK didn't need farmers and could import all its food from overseas in the same way as countries like Singapore. But if there's one thing this pandemic has done, it is show the value of British farming and the work its farmers are doing in feeding the nation every single day. With supermarket sales up 20% in March, worth over £10 billion, it's better performance than at Christmas. Now, buying seems to have slowed down to a more manageable pace. Supply chains have been given breathing space to realign and there's more positive news about fast food chains which take a lot of British meat, Burger King being one of them, and hopefully McDonald's, the biggest customer of UK beef, will come back soon too. However, at farm level, there is a price disparity which does not match demand. With a slump in beef prices, lamb prices lagging behind where they were 12 months ago, and of course, chronic issues within the dairy supply chain. I think we're all craving analysis on what this actually means in terms of market dynamics and also that question of how the processing sector is coping with new challenges brought about by coronavirus, such as social distancing. Our reporter Hannah Binns has been finding out. The red meat sector has been one of the most exposed to the change in eating habits brought about by the coronavirus pandemic, with realignment of supply chains causing market disruption for beef and lamb producers and reports of carcass imbalance and recessionary buying behaviours beginning to surface. I caught up with Duncan Wyatt, red meat lead analysis at AHDB, and Stuart Ashworth, director of economic services at Quality Meat Scotland, to find out more. Duncan, tell me, what is currently happening in red meat market in terms of price, trade and throughputs. I noticed cattle prices across the board were down this week. Yeah, that's right. So um, obviously we just had the, the Easter weekend. So that's really, so throughputs have been affected a little bit by that, as in slightly lower. We're in obviously a bit of an unusual situation whereby we, we're kind of coming out of this sort of panic buying period for groceries generally. That obviously would have included red meat. And obviously the market's trying to find a bit of a balance in terms of what's happened with demand falling obviously dramatically in food service and a lot of processors moving their supplies over towards retail. So if you look at the kind of four weeks up until the 22nd of March, overall volume in total food and drink went up by 18.7% compared to the previous year. Okay. That's really the stockpiling we've been talking about. And red meat, beef in particular, has done particularly uh, well in terms of volumes out of that. An extra 35% of beef was sold. Having said that, you've mentioned it already, which is a lot of that would have been mints and obviously a lot of higher value cuts going to food service. So so although the volume's gone up by 35%, the value only went up by about 32%. And that, that kind of is reflective of people buying mints in particular and lower value cuts in the supermarket. We're kind of waiting for it all to shake out a little bit um, in terms of the new demand looks like in terms of without panic buying and kind of just what domestic demand looks like with those out of home meals being replaced in the home. But at the moment, you know, a lot of abattoirs are still running. Uh, it looks as, though, as if they're really challenged in terms of profitability. And obviously, as you, you know, you'll know that the price for cattle, deadweight cattle dropped last week by about 8p to, to just below £3.30 kilogram overall for, for prime animals. And that's because of, yeah, this carcass balance issue isn't really helping in as much as uh, a lot of mince is being sold. 
Um, hides are also quite cheap now as well. And in fact, some some hides are really worth nothing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Are being stored, hoping that the market's going to recover for that one as well. And so, yeah, it's, it's tough conditions at the minute, but we're still waiting for supply and demand to kind of balance each other to see to where the new new level is. So am I right in thinking this all mostly stems from COVID-19 impacts on the food service sector collapsing? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Up until the food service sector was closed on that Friday night, price for prime cattle had been kind of clawing its way slightly upwards in the first quarter of the year. And we got to around 335. And we've been there for a few weeks. And then, yeah, the, the, the big change in demand where supermarkets have been stocking up with mints, because that's what consumers have been wanting. It's really behind the whole thing. You can, you can see it in, in cow prices as well, in particular. A lot of cow beef, manufacturing beef gets sold into food service too. And those, those prices started to drop two or three weeks ago. So that was the first thing to go in Ireland and here as well. And then obviously the prime prices finally succumbed to that as well. Good news is that you, there's kind of a, a few instances now of supermarkets starting to discount these kind of more expensive top cuts, which okay. is good. Uh, and obviously HDB has got its own date night campaign, which we're running as well to try and encourage people to take the plunge and cook some of these cuts at home as well in a way that they'll enjoy. I was just about to ask you about that, actually, in terms of consumer habits changing. Are you seeing more people cooking, different kinds of joints? Uh, how are you encouraging that? Yeah, again, so obviously we've got our steak nights campaign, so we're trying to encourage people to go into those slightly more expensive cuts as well and move away from mints. I mean, people were kind of exhibiting a little bit of recessionary behaviour before COVID-19, and that, that means kind of a little bit of belt tightening, and we saw that in demand across all the red meats a little bit. It was a little bit lower in that period coming into the, the current situation that we're in as well. And then, yeah, so I, I, read a, I read an article this morning that said that a YouGov survey had said that 38% of people are, are cooking from scratch more or scratch okay. cooking more. So there is definitely more of that going on at home. And obviously, some of these cuts really lend themselves quite nicely to that. So, yeah, we just try and encourage people to kind of branch out a little bit away from mints. Yeah, sounds good to me. In terms of forecasting for red meat, where do you see prices going over the next month? Over the next month, it's hard to be too optimistic, really, because, again, we've, we've seen the panic buying. So we've seen the kind of the, the big jump in retail demand. And I would have thought that's going to all settle down now. And, we, and we're going to be kind of in this period where it looks as if the, the lockdown is going to last for another three weeks, at least. And so people are, are at home. They've stocked up. I can't help thinking that demand is going to settle down at this new lower level, even if supermarkets are able to kind of shift these more expensive cuts as well. With that in mind, yeah, I can't really see prices recovering really strongly. Whether they'll go down more, I, I couldn't say either. It's hard to be too optimistic. Again, you know, the hide market is starting to open up a little bit in Italy, but things are really slow there as well. Car manufacturing pretty much ground to a halt across most of Europe, it seems to me at least. These demand for these other other products, which will go into the cattle price overall, is going to be sluggish for a while. And how are AHDB facing this COVID-19 issue? I know you've talked about your campaigns, but what else is the organisation doing to help farming businesses offset some of the challenges? Well, unfortunately, you know, one of the things we have had to do is is cancel a lot of our events, which hasn't been ideal. So that's been a bit of a blow. We, we obviously put quite a lot of stock in that engagement we get through those live events. We've dedicated a big part of the new website, which I hope people have kind of finally being able to navigate their way around. We've dedicated a, a lot of uh, the coronavirus on there in terms of advice for farmers and growers. So we've got um, frequently asked questions. We've got sections on contingency planning for businesses and what we're doing on mm-hmm. consumer marketing. The part I work in at AHDB is the market intelligence group, and we're obviously doing as much as we can to keep people abreast of what the market situation is in terms of supply, demand, and yeah. trade, and we have the information as well. So we're just trying to kind of arm people with as much information as possible to help them make decisions in this this uh, you know really really difficult time is europe seeing a similar situation in terms of their red meat market in compared to ours yes it really is i mean obviously we've just come through easter and uh, i think demand has been generally lower across the whole of europe as well 
tell. Again, we're still waiting on kind of more, more tangible data. But, you know, France obviously kind of prioritised French lamb, it seems. Uh, and so our exports to France, uh, I mean, they would have been lower anyway, probably because of lockdown there as well. And that's kind of taken the wind out of our exports a little bit. The good news is that China is starting to open up again uh, now, which is great. And so there was a few weeks when we were kind of mindful that there might be some um, lamb would might come our way from say New Zealand and although volumes did creep up a little bit we didn't really see that much extra New Zealand lamb which was shut out of China because of coronavirus and so so that has kind of kept the wall from door a little bit although we don't export directly ourselves to China again New Zealand having access to that market again is, is kind of good for us in that sense as well because up until now New Zealand exports to the UK have been low for the last couple of years and that's allowed us to a sell more British lamb here, but also export more to Europe, where New Zealand will also have supplied lamb to as well. So yeah, unfortunately, coronavirus has not been positive for demand anywhere. And so yeah, but you know, my understanding is that beef and lamb is still moving into those markets. Obviously, we do we do quite well in food service and on the continent in terms of our exports. And so that's the market really that's been hit the hardest. I mean, another thing HB's done is, is we've kind of put out some homeschooling resources well in terms of the importance of food and things like that and also i believe in our simply beef and lamb website and other places we've got um, recipe cards to help people with ideas for scratch cooking at home too have you got a favorite recipe card i'll be honest i'm really simple i just like steak that's it <laughs> steak sandwiches <laughs> that's what i like at least it's a valued cut meat yeah sorry i'm sorry <laughs> thanks duncan Stuart, what are your thoughts on the situation well, the basic challenge has arisen because of the, the, the closure of out-of-home eating and the closure of schools, of course, and that has changed uh, the way in which meat has reached the market historically. So now what we've got is a lot more uh, customers, uh, a lot more custom in the high street butchers and in the multiple retailers and the convenience stores. What has also happened is that the way in which people are buying meat has changed. Uh, so with, uh, without going uh, into restaurants and things like that, the demand for roasts has reduced. Meanwhile, the, the demand for um, dicings, meat and mince and things that are easy to cook uh, has increased. And how are industry reacting to this? I've noticed a few um, campaigns from the retailers to promote meat, but is that enough? The, the way that customers and uh, consumers are buying their meat now means that there is a greater demand in the multiple retailers for mince and for the cheaper cuts. Mm -hmm. The challenge we have is to maintain carcass balance by encouraging consumers to continue to take steaks and roasts. And to do that, we will need to keep informing them of the ways in which that can be used, the ways in which they can cook that and uh, produce a product as good or if not better than what they have been used to when they've been eating out. I noticed cattle prices were down across the board this week. Is this something you would have expected? While it's disappointing uh, to see cattle prices falling, I think we have to recognise that what the butchers and the abattoirs can afford to pay for cattle is determined by the revenue they get themselves. And the change in the balance of the products that they are finding the markets for, that is the increase in the volume of diced meat and mincing meat, that increase in the volume of the lower value cuts, means that the total revenue that they are picking up from each carcass reduces. And that would inevitably place 
um, financial challenges on the abattoir and the butchery businesses. Some of the major fast food chains are starting to reopen some of the branches for delivery, such as KFC and Burger King. Is this a positive step in the right direction to getting some food service markets back up and running? Will this help lift the price, do you think? Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing is that the food services businesses and indeed the the wholesalers that have been supplying food service businesses are repositioning their businesses to try and generate some some income for themselves. And one way that they're doing that is they're switching to click and collect, uh, phone and collect or phone and order online and do deliveries. The challenge that comes from that is that it will generate sales, it will generate income for these businesses, but it's not the economic salvation for them. It is okay. allowing them to generate some income to try and keep their businesses going and active. And inevitably, it will create some demand for um, for red meat. And from small acorns, as they say, things will grow. So it is positive for us that these food service businesses are seeking to uh, continue their activities, but it will be a slow build and slow recovery. So where would you probably see the market in a month or two's time? Obviously, we're going to be in lockdown for another three weeks. So do you think it'll be more of the same or can you see any kind of positives coming from this? Where will we be in a month's time? Much will depend on the speed of relaxation of coronavirus measures, but it would seem to me that it will be some time before food service businesses, even if they are open, will have built their sales platforms back to the levels that they were previously. So the challenging environment will continue for some time. But as we become more accustomed to the way of working and as we become more able to plan the demand for red meats, then I would hope that uh, the prices would begin to stabilize and we would see some sort of normality. The challenge we've had over the past three weeks has been just the total volatility of the market of suddenly a very strong demand, uh, then, a, then a weaker demand. Uh, hopefully it's it's rebuilding a little bit into a new norm and it has taken it takes time when the market gets destabilized as much as it has been or was on the 23rd of march to rebalance itself into the new the new ways of working and i would hope over the next month that we will rebalance ourselves into the new ways of working there may be opportunities will come from it uh, as consumers build their own confidence in their abilities to do stakes and do races and things like that. Uh, and we might find that over time, that drift towards mince and dicing meat will start to um, rebalance itself again. But it, it will be time consuming and it will need patience and forbearance on all parts to, to take us into a reset and recovery mode. I mean, one area that concerns me in the red meat supply chain at the moment is the financial vulnerability of catering butchers, medium-sized meat wholesalers, those businesses who have been supplying meat into the food service sector. They will be severely challenged in terms of bad debt, 
from money lying out when the, the, the food service businesses were closed, but also they'll be challenged by the build-up in working capital when those food services businesses reopen, and they once again are expected to supply meat into those businesses on credit terms. I have concerns for that element of the um, supply chain going forward. I think the area for opportunity, I guess, would be the fact that people are being forced in some ways to eat at home, to be forced in some ways to refresh their skills in producing red meat-based meals, and maybe we will find that as they build those skills and as they build that confidence, that they may well look to buy more product out of the, the multiple retailers and the high street butchers. I think the high street butchers have opportunities to build on customer base that I think they may be, uh, the new customers that may be coming to them through their offer of online product or home delivery product. And it may well be in the future that we see um, a different way of people trading rather than coming to the shops of the shops going to the consumer. So out of every adversity, there will come some opportunities. And let's just hope that we're all in a position to, to grasp those opportunities uh, as they evolve. Are you hearing of instances where processors are struggling? I have not heard any instances of processors struggling. I think there may be some smaller abattoir wholesalers who will be facing those challenges of where a lot of their custom was in the food service sector. They may well be finding it challenging to find different outlets. You can't switch into multiple retail supply quickly. It takes time and takes process to do that. So, but um, no, I'm not hearing of slaughtering and, and businesses being challenged. I am hearing of wholesale supply chain, catering butchers, uh, some of those businesses being challenged and working reduced hours, you know, to supply a, a reduced base. Some of those are looking at these alternative ways of reaching consumers through online sales and through home delivery. And it's offering them some respite, but it's not complete respite. I'm hearing rumours that there's been some lack of transparency within the red beet supply chain. Do you have any comments, thoughts? The issue of transparency in the food chain, whether that be the meat supply chain, you know, the milk supply chain, the fruit and vegetable supply chain, has been a challenge and a, and a regular topic of discussion for many years. So I think we would all like to see more transparency in the chain because that is what would give the producers in particular more confidence and understanding of how the supply chain operates. If as producers we understand the challenges of the processor and we understand the challenges of the retail butcher or the retailer, and they understand the challenges that, as a producer, we have of trying to plan the delivery of an animal to the slaughterhouse, which effectively for cattle is a three-month planning process, yeah. then I think the whole chain would benefit by sharing knowledge and sharing the challenges and sharing 
where each of us thinks that the demand and the opportunity lies. To find out how COVID-19 is affecting the operational side of the red meat sector, I spoke to Nick Allen, Chief Executive Officer of the British Meat Processing Association. I am aware the meat processing sector has faced labour shortages in abattoirs and processing plants before COVID-19. How has labour been affected since? Well, uh, we haven't done too badly, actually. The, the uh, assessment across the whole sector seems to be that we're running at about sort of 10 to 15 percent below uh, sort of ideally where we'd like to be, which interestingly enough was you know, we, we were almost 10 or 15 percent short anyway. The combination of having to do a bit more social distancing in the sort of plant and space workers out quite a bit more and the uh, fact that people don't really want to take holiday at the time because obviously they can't go away anywhere uh, means that they're happy to work so we've almost been able to compensate for those that have been off with social distancing and uh, and, and for other reasons obviously shield, shielding sort of ones at home those that have had to stay away from work so there's almost been a bit of a, a, a compensation you know sort of, sort of factors have come in so touch wood so far labour wise it's uh, um, that hasn't been the main challenge getting the labour in there was are interesting problems in the first couple of weeks where the, the police were stopping people coming to work and we had one plant actually about 40 staff didn't get through the uh, uh, the police lines on the first morning but we then issued them with our letters that uh, showed that they were key workers okay. and that, that's, that's all settled down now so the, the, the staff have had to learn to to um, sort of stick to new, new social distancing um, uh, controls really uh, you know where we can in plants we've managed to get people you know two meters apart there are some parts of the plant you just can't do that in some instances we've been able to put up uh, perspex shields between people uh to make them more sort of comfortable in, a, in other occasions you know we've just had to say look nothing we can do here but we have managed to overcome most of the problems um so the plants are probably running a little bit more slowly than than we'd like and therefore they're working slightly longer hours to keep up but touch wood uh that that's not been you know that that's not the main problem at the moment and what would you say the main problem is I, I think the main problem certainly is, is, uh, and I, I know you've touched it a lot in this sort of podcast, is the carcass imbalance issues, you know, so that's what's causing the main concern. So, uh, you know, the cold stores are filling up, getting ever full, and we're just doing a bit of a sort of survey to try and, with our members, to try and understand just how full they are. And it varies a lot. It depends plant by plant, company by company, and it really all comes down to how great a proportion of their work was with the food service sector and whether it was with the, with the retail sector. So it's easy for those that had that connection with the retail sector to transfer it all over whereas actually if they had a high commitment on the food service sector that was a sort of that was a real problem and a quick sort of snapshot of uh you know one of our sort of pig plants was flagging that um they're, they're nearly 90 percent sort of full in the cold store and they'd actually had to sort of rent sort of three extra cold stores on the pig side so long as the the flow to china continues um and that's been improving a bit of late so there was a bit of an issue earlier on because uh, we were struggling to get refrigeration uh, units back to actually keep the flow going. That seems to have picked up now. Mm. So as long as that flow going, so, you know, 74, you know, 75 percent of what was in those, that store will be destined for China. So it'll it'll keep flowing. On the beef side, yes, we've got another mem- member has got a 85 percent of his cold stores full of actually things that probably would have um, ideally gone into the t- towards the food service sector. You know, the steaks and the higher end quality sort of cuts that aren't shifting and been shifting through the retailers.
what happens then if this meat can't be shifted from these cold stores? What will happen eventually is that the plants will have to close down. Cold storage is 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 not getting an easy thing to um uh, to lay your hands on. So they'll they'll gradually end up sort of cu cutting back on the, the the kill that they do. And and you know it, in the worst case scenario, if it's all kept on and kept going and going like that, you know eventually it sort of forces a plant to shut down, or they actually take the hit on the meat and actually mince it. And and we already have got some members that. Are throwing quite high quality you know steaks into into the mincing machine and making that decision on the spot that obviously has a devaluing effect on the carcass you know and and so they'll either you know they'll have a choice of actually you know gradually sort of killing less and less and and, and hoping at some stage the food service sector will open up and they can sort of shift them or they have to mince more and that obviously devalues the carcass and and, and sooner or later that will have an impact on the farm gate price that they that, that they can pay because it's um uh you, you can't afford to keep mincing uh you know high quality cuts and putting them into a into mince what's happening in terms of skins and hides obviously understandably factories in italy have been closed has this developed over recent weeks are you seeing factories reopen they are still flowing just the same and they see, seem to be still going okay. uh going out of country we were concerned at first um there's been a, a drop in value they are still seem to be flowing. Uh, you know, our, our biggest dread is actually if that, that flow stops because it can shut a plant down quicker than anything if you just can't get those skins and hides away. They just build up very, very quickly and they're quite difficult things to dispose of. Some of the smaller plants, I understand, have actually done deals with local councils to um, go into landfill, but the bigger plants, it would just be too much to go into sort of landfill. Um, but there's one, one or two other avenues being explored with um, uh, the, the skins, you know, sort of turning them into sort of gelatin and things like that so touch wood at the moment whilst it's been uh, a sort of devaluing with the carcass you know they're still flowing really so am i right in thinking if they ended up in landfill they aren't being paid for oh that's right you know in fact um uh, anything uh, you, you know so re really if you um down to not being paid anything you know and they're just taking them away uh, you've already got a cost for that because you still have to sort of do, do a bit of treating them and yes if they're going into landfill they're certainly not going to get going to be paid for them uh you know so and, and as i say you you can't put too many into landfill we, we examined this when we were coming up for uh, a no deal brexit and i'm guessing that if they aren't being paid for that'll have obviously a knock-on effect on the farm gate prices yeah, sooner or later that filters back through. Yes, there are one or two things on on, on the upside because of the um uh you know in terms of those fifth fifth quarter areas things like sausages are a lot more in demand actually. So sausage casing sort of trade has probably picked up a little bit. Um, you know, it's a bit you know it's a bit, a bit because of it. So you know, because obviously people are at home, sausages are um I, th I think are sort of doing fairly well at the moment. It it, it doesn't totally sort of counter it, but you know there, there are there are there are some you know. <laughs> Some other things that come along to help a bit you know it's not not all all bad news but yeah that's the devaluing of the of the highs does um yeah it, it can you know not knock a lot off the farm gate price really a while ago you mentioned to farmers guardian that you were concerned about shortages for food standard agency vets and you were keen to see regular gate vets granted temporary powers to alleviate any shortfall has there been any traction with this lobbying ask are you still waiting for further clarity no, we've actually had a, a very good dialogue with the Food Standards Agency uh, to the point now where we have a daily meeting with them between ourselves and um, AIMS, the other trade association in the, in the industry and the Food Standards Agency to touch base where things are. And we've been working together with them on a, uh, a strategic 
plan um, that actually, you know, in simple terms is in four layers, you know, there's four tiers to it. Tier four being absolute sort of catastrophe and what you do about that. So for each tier of that sort of plan, uh, we've developed that sort of contingency plan of what we should do. That's what at the moment uh, things are fairly good. I think the FSA are probably short of about 130 staff because of isolation or, you know, sort of again, sort of shield, shielding workers. A few plants have closed, a few cold stores have closed, and uh, they had sort of been tra- dragging in everyone from everywhere. So at the moment, it looks as though, um, you, you know, they're, they're assuring us that they're, they're comfortable and they can cover all the, all the needs. And as I say, if it does get worse, we've now got a reasonable plan right the way through to, you know, the actual disaster plan where we've actually sort of got none at all really and what we do about it but yeah we, we've got a, a plan in place for every stage of the way looking ahead where do you see the sector in the next few weeks do you see it changing in terms of its dynamics no i i think as it comes under more and more sort of pressure there'll be a lot more rationalizing uh the the the, the, the kill seems to be dropping off a bit particularly on the beef, uh, beef side I, I suppose it'd be helpful to take each sector by sort of sector really you know because they're they're they're, they're they're in different places, really. So if we take the beef sector, since I started sort of talking about it, the kills seem to be dropping off. I, I think there will be a little bit of rationalisation, and if the retailers continue to actually not not actually order the, and look for the, the whole sort of carcass really and having to rationalise lines I think there'll be an element of people trying to move meat around and actually sort of only put them through certain plants whether that'll go as far as actually moving animals around I, I'm not you know we'll have to see how bad how bad it gets but uh, I can see a few more packing lines you know possibly being sort of closed and a bit of rationalisation in that area just have to sort of see whether you, you, you never know in this industry whether someone's in a particular place or not whether there's something sort of pushes them over the edge and you see a closure there's always sort of something around the corner that might affect it and that's down to individual businesses and their particular circumstances and their their arrangements I think the will on the beef side be a little bit of mothballing I think of you know sort of parts of the sort of supply chain the uh, the pig side is seems to be ticking along um relatively sort of nice at the moment there's a good 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 supply of um pigs coming through and there's a good demand and you haven't quite got the carcass imbalance issues that you have got in the beef side probably shoulders and, and bellies are starting to sort of, uh, you know sort of build up a little bit in store but as I say it, that's probably a bit more of a, a slow burn and the, the critical issue that's in the beef sector and then the the lamb side it's a fairly quiet time um on the on the lamb side but we are just seeing signs that the export side is is recovering a little bit and picking up picking up if something like this was going to happen from the lamb sector's point of view it's quite a good sort of time to happen so some of the sheep plants are actually just operating on sort of two or three days a week um some of the, the, the the more specific ones and one of the things we've been trying to negotiate with government and persuade them to do is um, to do with furloughing really in our view and we're trying to make the case to government that if you could allow part-time furloughing i.e a plant could be open three days a week and then you could furlough for the workers for two days a week you, to run a plant you actually need all the staff in to run it efficiently and that would be better you know and more economic than that a plant having to weigh up are we going to close completely and, and sort of furlough everyone and it's also a better option 
direction and sort of trying to actually rotate the workers, which is what's being suggested. So we'd written to the Chancellor, we've been lobbying everywhere we can to act try and get this change to the furloughing arrangements so that we can have part-time furloughing. They, they've done it in Ireland and, and, and you've got that sort of flexibility over there and we don't really see why we couldn't have it over here. And I think that would help keep plants open. Uh, better to have plants open two or three days a week than uh, having them closed and that, that would mean animals would be having to travel further to, to be slaughtered somewhere else. They're sympathetic to the argument, but because of the stage, the whole furloughing process is that they sort of said, well, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but probably not right at this moment in time. So we've been talking to government and actually trying to help them build a business case. Uh, it's obviously a decision Treasury has to make. It's not something that DEFRA can make. Uh, so we've been working with DEFRA to try and you know, demonstrate the business case uh, for, for doing it and try and, try and progress it. So I have a feeling that actually at some stage in the future it would happen to be honest the plants could do with that ha happening now otherwise uh, they might be forced in into sort of you know making those uh, slightly more dramatic decisions what else would your members like from government to help them through this uncertain time I, I think on the beef sector, such as the 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 the, the buildings problem, I, I think they would like a dialogue with sort of government to say, actually, look, let's try and get a plan going. The government seems to be very preoccupied at the moment with what's happening in the dairy sector, and and I, I guess because the, the the problems in the beef sector isn't right in their sort of face at this moment in time, and and they don't see it as critical enough. They're they're focused on resolving that issue. So we've been saying to the government, and we asked them this week, look, could we actually have a high level meeting with uh, the, 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 just specifically in the beef industry to actually discuss what some of the solutions might be you know and there's, there's a whole load of things that could be on the sort of the table do you um, uh, do you look at some sort of intervention buying some sort of private storage aid or, or you know do you accept the sort of the price drops and you look at a package at the farmer end uh, to support the sort of farmer from that point of view or is the pressure that they can sort of build on the retailers to help us with balancing the carcass a bit more that we've already seen the levy board you know sort of dip their hands in their pocket a bit and and uh, and start to help with a promotional campaign and they've taken some uh, money out of what they call their ring fence funding and they that kicked off before easter trying to help to promote this sort of the cuts of meat i'm not sure we've got a specific ask of government yet other than actually we'd like to sit around the table and start discussing it and try and head off um a, a, a crisis before it um it, you know it, it develops into a sort of a, a real one and you know so hopefully there's some solutions can be found to avoid a really sort of serious issue like you've got in the dairy industry where you've got farmers pouring milk down the drain. Some fast food chains are starting to reopen for home delivery. Will that help ease some of this pressure on the carcass balance? Undoubtedly, any, anything that opens up uh, will help really. Obviously, for, for the whole industry, the loss of McDonald's was a massive one. Really, they they were a huge user of the uh, the front end of the carcass and the cow, you know, sort of cow cow. So, sort of home delivery that that provides a bit more flexibility. You know, sort of uh, people can sort of you know provides ready meals they can use some of these bits of the carcass that possibly um aren't currently being used into maybe some ready meals into curries and things like that so anything like that is good news anything that gives the opportunity to get rid of some of these cuts that 
you basically aren't going through the retail end. It's been a, a hard two or three weeks since this all sort of kicked off. And actually, uh, I think the communication up and down the industry and everyone's sort of talking to one another and trying to find the solutions together has helped a lot, actually. And I think uh, whilst sometimes there aren't, you know, the solutions that people want, but uh, I, I would have to say that, you know, on the, on the whole, uh, right across the board, there's been a, a lot of good examples of people working together and helping helping one another. And uh, that we, we need a bit more of that if it's, it's going to happen. If I have, you know, one real appeal, it would be back to the uh, to retailers to really look at help shoulder responsibility for this carcass balance um, uh, issue. And I, I, I think probably there's still more that that sector can do to, to help us. There's one or two good examples of, of where they are, you know, generally make, making some improvements but there's um uh, there's still one or two that are really still doing the same old thing really and, and really you know we could do with them sort of coming to the party a little bit more and taking their bit of responsibility and i think that would be helpful but what is happening down on the ground for livestock farmers i spoke to neil shand national beef association trustee to find out more so neil there's no denying consumers cannot get enough of red meat produce and it is flying off the shelves how did you react when you heard Sainsbury's and Asda were selling Polish mints rather than British to meet growing consumer demand? Obviously, we were very disappointed that uh, there was a lot of Polish meat ended up in the shelves of those two supermarkets. We wrote to them both individually, and in fairness to them, they both contacted us after they received our letter. We understand there was some panic buying at the beginning of March, which cleared the shelves, and the processor that supplies these two supermarkets would actually import some Polish meat on a weekly basis and instead of going into the service sector to things like care homes and school meals etc they rerouted it um, into onto mince and then onto the shelves of these supermarkets it, it was very disappointing um, you know when the, there was a lot of um, back British fervor going through the country at that point um, and I think more or less was left um, on the shelves as a show of support to British farming. So you've mentioned that they have responded. Um, what kind of things did they say? How are you going to work with these supermarkets going forward? Well, I think we have to remember the industry needs supermarkets. You know, 70% plus of the product, product produced goes <laughs> through supermarkets every year. We can't do without them. And it would be naive to think we can. They, they both were very open in explaining their decision was made because the shelves were empty and they wanted to feed the country. At that point, we can accept. But, you know, they, they could have just pushed their suppliers harder to get British product, there's plenty available. Um, and they, they have both said that they will, you know, revert to their process of, of producing or supplying um, only British and Irish beef. And we accept that. And we'll have to be fair to them. They did both respond and they acted in what they thought was their best interest at the time of crisis. So we've already heard from Duncan Wyatt about how carcass imbalance poses a real issue for the industry, especially considering mince makes up 20% of the prime value carcass. What can industry do to help negate this impact? And is retailer promotion of steaks and roasting joints enough or does it need to go further? I think the levy boards across all countries have reacted you know, in a tremendous way last week. They all took a, a big advertising campaign to the forefront of their, of their work at the moment. And it's needed, um, and we need help from the supermarkets to promote um, these more expensive cuts, a lot of which would normally end up in the service sector. There's not an awful lot more we can do other than promote it. Um, you know, mince has had to compete, and they've used mince to compete with, with pork and chicken for a long time. Um, we need 
fully need support of the retailers. I can't emphasize that enough. You know, as I previously said, 70% of everything we sell goes through them, and we rely on them very heavily at the moment. And you know, there's a YouGov poll out today suggesting that you know, since the start of the lockdown, you know, more than three and a half weeks ago now, um, the consumer is paying more attention to food, and they are trying more things and more adventurous things than possibly in the past. And I think you'll find that people will start, you know, dabbling cooking steaks, et cetera, and having a bigger roast at home as we move on. Would you like to see consumers picking up these bigger pieces of joints or do you reckon it's just because they've not got the knowledge and experience of cooking with them and it's something they can learn to adapt and cook with over time? I think, you know, mints can, you have a lot of options with mints. If less options were, were, were steak and, and roasting cuts. Steaks traditionally viewed as a treat and a, a lot of people would have just had a steak if they go out to eat. You know, that's where the majority of uh, steak meat would be sold. Um, but people will learn. Um, the lockdown is not a great situation for any of us to be in, albeit it's needed. And I think people will start to treat themselves. Um, and we need, as I say, we need a bit of support um, in the supermarkets to, to help us address the carcass balance thing and, and make it a little bit easier for people to be able to afford to buy steaks and roasting joints. You are first and foremost a beef farmer. What's happening down on the ground for you in terms of beef prices and feed bills increasing? Yes, the whole the whole scenario. I think we've we've got to remember that the service sector in our country was switched off like a light switch, and it's created you know just blockages in the, in the process and in production lines everywhere. At farm level, um, we're isolated by nature, so there's no real difference other than you know the farm gate price is being squeezed. Um, that's sore. Um, we are below the cost of production in, in most cases at the moment, and it's not a nice scenario to be. Um, classed as, as core workers, there are a lot of farmers out there at the moment who are working as hard as ever to support the country um, and getting paid less for their product across all sectors of agriculture, not necessarily just beef. And, and it's hard. Um, and I think many people would like recognition for that, but being... Um, good old British as we are, we'll just keep on keeping on and make sure the nation is fed. How have you found trading at Marts now that the lockdown's happened in terms of the drop and go policies? All credit to those people involved in keeping the markets going. It's very important that live markets are, are visible and prices are visible for prime cattle and store cattle um, from some of our producers' um, angles. And I mean, cattle producers, breeding sales have not happened. And it would be good if they could, perhaps as we get into May and June, um, the peak period for breeding sales, if they were able to facilitate some of that as well. Um, the social distancing, um, as you say, drop and go is working perfectly across the whole of the UK. Um, and probably we see no reason why that can't function in a similar way for breeding sales, which are important. You know, the, the meat that's being consumed everywhere at the moment, the production process started three years ago. Everybody should remember that. And, you know, we don't want to have a problem in three years' time having production stalls at the moment. Are you excited by the prospect of um, them going virtual breeding sales or do you think there's still the need for them to take place in person? I think that's an individual choice. That um, A lot of people buying breeding cattle would prefer to see them, but we have to, again, you know, complement these markets, etc., that have made these facilities available and wish them all the best and we hope they work. You will obviously talk to a lot of beef farmers on a daily basis. What are the main issues they are concerned about at the moment and would like government to address? Continual pressure on farm gate price, which 
you know, even before, even in February, it, it wasn't great. You know, it's, it's it, as I say, in many cases, it's below the cost of production um, and it's being squeezed even further. Um, and we know that there's been a lot of problems created in the processing lines. Some cattle have been held back. Social distancing in abattoirs is difficult. Um, everybody's having to work with a completely new set of circumstances. But very soon, government will have to address the farm gate price before we go into a real crisis situation. Finally, what can consumers do at home to support British and land producers? Um, quite simply, just buy more British beef um, and, and help us um, by, by supporting the carcass balance issues that we've got by not purely buying mince, but maybe, you know, steaks and roasting joints and um, diced. Every, every option is there. Um, and I think we have a great opportunity here um, and we need to, to grasp this as an industry. The British consumer has very much came on board not only with beef, but with British beef. And one of the, you know, cl silver clouds with silver linings coming out of this will be that we as an industry have to make sure that we keep the supermarkets connected to the consumer. And we all work together to ensure that the British product is consumed more and more moving forward. Food security seems to be the buzzword of the moment. But how can we make our food chains less vulnerable? And is that even possible? Jez Fredenberg has two experts to find out more. The global pandemic has put food security squarely in the spotlight. What is it revealing about our food system? And what are its strengths and weaknesses when tested? What is it telling us about how things need to change? Joining me for a dive into this is Professor Chris Elliott, who I feel hardly needs an introduction to anybody who's been involved in food in the last few years. Chris is director of the Institute for Global Food Security at Queen's University Belfast and led the UK government's independent review into food systems following the horsemeat scandal in 2013. Chris, hello. Hi, Jess. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Are you safe and well in Northern Ireland? Yes, I've been uh, trying to cope under the new circumstances like, like many other people, Jess. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear you're safe and well. Um, I'm guessing this is this must be a very interesting time for you watching everything unfold. I'm I'm wondering what is the pandemic telling us about the current state of the UK's food security? Yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. There are so many things happening. I mean we we can see and you know, on our TV screens, all of the, the, the issues about the health service and the fantastic work that they're doing. But also we have those millions of, of what are being described as our food heroes now, making sure that, you know, we, we have sufficient food to eat. And, and uh, I think when, when, when we talk about food security, actually those people are underpinning the, the, whole, the whole country in many different ways. And we, we can see problems, we can see stresses, but actually our, our food system is standing up pretty well to all of the challenges at the moment, but understanding there's probably even greater challenges, I think, coming down the road. Okay, so what would you say is it showing us in terms of current, um, current vulnerabilities, but also current, current strengths in the food system? Yeah, I mean, really what we can say is the ability to feed the nation. I think the government has left it to the private sector to deal with and, and probably act, actually the right thing to do. You know, we have a number of very big 
multinational companies, the big retailers, uh, with very, very well-organized supply chains, very robust, and really it's been left to them to make sure that you know there, there's enough food for, for us all to eat. And then sitting in behind that, we've got a really big food manufacturing uh, uh, sector as well, who's been doing a fantastic job. I guess what we've got to think about, Jez, is that as a nation now, we import about 40% of all of the food that we eat. And the likelihood is there will be, I think, shortages of some of that manifesting itself within the not-too-distant future. Okay, so... I mean, it, it sounds like, um, just going back to your first point, it sounds like um, the fact that our food system is made up of some very big actors, like the, the big four supermarkets and very big manufacturers, that is actually proving to be a bit of a strength of it in this situation. I mean, I think absolutely. You know, if you go back to the last time there was potentially food shortages in the UK, it was the Second World War, and it really had to be the government took total control of that. They, they had to put in place food rationing. That hasn't had to be the case now. The supermarkets have at some stages told us that we can only buy one, two or three particular items because there were strain on those systems. But they have that managed very well because of the infrastructure that they have in place, because of their knowledge of local sourcing and global sourcing as well. Okay, I mean... I feel um, for a while people have also talked about the the strength um, in local supply chains. What where does that leave local sourcing and local supply chains in all of this? I think you can see there's been a, a bit of a renaissance in people actually going to the local shops to buy food, and I think that is tremendous, and a lot of that locally sourced food is locally produced and I think that is fantastic that you know if you want to look for some of the, the positive outcomes the, the people trying to buy food that that has been produced locally is is a great thing and I just hope that trend continues you know post our crisis period so so let's look at you mentioned earlier you think that at some point we might start to have problems with um, with imports of certain foods. Do you have a sense of what types of food those might be? And and is that dependent on where they might be coming from and the type of logistics needed to get them here? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I do with my colleagues at our institute, we do is we, we track a lot of things that happen in the global food system. And I will tell you, it is in total upheaval at the moment. You know, because it's not just the UK is facing the pandem pandemic, it's, it is a global phenomena. So I, I thought I'll give you one specific example, and that's rice. You know, a lot of us will eat rice one, two, maybe three times a week. Some people we did a lot more than that. We've had very secure supply systems put in place for rice coming into the UK for a long time. A lot of it will come from places like India, Vietnam. And you know what? India, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, other countries have stopped now exporting rice because they want to keep it for, for their own, you know, indigenous population, which is absolutely right. So I guess my question is now, once all of the reserves that we have in the UK for rice, which is probably two, four, six weeks, where's our rice going to come from? 
we might actually find shortages of rice or we might find that it has to be sourced from different parts of the world. And, and sourcing from those different parts of the world is far from far from simple because you've got to, again, look at the logistics, the supply chains. Will, there, will the rice be as safe? Will it be as nutritious? All sorts of different issues. So that's just one example. And, you know, I could talk through commodity after commodity after commodity that we import into the UK. And I mean, Chris, you're you're very much an expert in food safety, and I know you have a a very interesting lab at the university where you test a lot of food. You know, what are the the risks of needing to find new um, new imports and new sources of food quickly like that? Yeah, thanks, and and you're absolutely right, Jess. I've been I've been thinking and looking very carefully at the issues of food safety. Um, short term and, and longer term. And I think we've got a, let's say, a local aspect to that. And the local aspect is we're all cooking a lot more ourselves, you know, from the, from the basic ingredients. And, and the questions are, are we storing that properly? Are we um, preparing the, the food properly? And are we cooking it properly? And it, it's going to be very difficult to, to see if cases of foodborne illness increase or decrease during the pandemic, mainly because it's going to be very, very difficult to collect and collate all of that data. But I also look at it from this uh, more global perspective as well, because sourcing of a lot of, of food commodities, a lot of food ingredients has had to change because of the crisis. And I just wonder, those places that it's been sourced from, is, there, is it the same standard in terms of, of, of quality, but also safety? Because, you know, what I'm very aware of now is basically that the system for auditing and inspecting farms and, and food manufacturing facilities has collapsed. It just doesn't happen at all now. Is, is that something, do you mean, as a result of the pandemic or that had been breaking down before that because of a lack of resources, for example? Yeah, really, it, it's multifactorial, but the the biggest thing is that those inspectors and auditors, you know, some of them are getting sick. Some of them uh, don't want to, to expose themselves to, to risks. And a lot of the farms, a lot of the food manufacturing facilities, they really don't want people coming in who might, who might be adding a risk to their business. Not that they don't want to be inspected, but they just see it as this additional risk factor now. And I see it happening in country after country after country. And the UK is no different. You know, that the, the red tractor inspection system has, has basically uh, come to a halt as well. Okay, so I mean, is that potentially um, going to lead to a, a different kind of health crisis? Like, could it? Well, again, you know, when I start to think this through, there is the potential for unsafe food now to be traded much more widely on those global markets, and and often, you know, in pre-pandemic. That would have not come near Europe. It wouldn't have come near the UK because of the inspections and audits and testing systems that we have in place. So what I think we need to be extremely vigilant in the UK about incoming materials. We've got to think is there could be additional risks there and we really have to check, check and inspect. And what about um, local food? You know, if we're, if we're struggling with... Uh, importing food and getting the food that we need from other countries. Can you see the need uh, for us to expand 
our own production and is do you think that is possible as well okay jess so you know just go back a couple of months and we were having quite a lot of discussions in the uk about our food supply system and you know some clever boffins in, in, in the government were starting to say, actually, we could import all of our food and, and, and we don't really need to produce food in the country anymore. Well, I hope, you know, <clears throat> to, to call a spade a spade, let's hope that nonsense has gone forever. And and can, can we really think about a food system in the future where we're importing 40% or more of the food that we eat every day? And I hope the answer is no. So, you know, I will start to talk about what I will call 70-30. You know, we should be producing 70% of our food and importing 30% because we're not going to start to grow rice and bananas in, in the UK. But we've got to think about how can we start to produce more food? And I think we've got lots and lots of opportunities, and that will be around a lot of innovation. How can we start to increase the amount of fruit and vegetables that we are growing? Is it the implica- uh, the, the implementation of um, vertical farming, the introduction of more robotics? So I think we have a phenomenal opportunity to think about refocusing and repurposing our food system. And the last thing I want to say about this is that the more I read about the pandemic, the victims of the pandemic are people who have been victims of a very poor food system. So if you look at the correlation between those people who have died and those people who were suffering from type 2 diabetes, it is the scandal. And, you know, it's been a ticking time bomb for a long time, our very poor health due to the food that we eat, now is the time to refocus and change that dramatically. And Chris, what does this mean for the UK food strategy? I know it's on pause at the moment, but should we actually be really examining this um, right now? Well, I mean, the, the, the food strategy that, that's being looked after by, by Henry Dimbleby, I think he's been doing a fantastic job in, in terms of really going out and talking to people about things. And, you know, it was pretty important six months ago. and It's even more important now. And I think a lot of those things that I talked about, about more local sourcing, more food being produced in the UK, but producing, you know, the right type of food to actually make us healthy and not to make us ill, that I think will, will absolutely be in the thinking of Henry Dimbleby and his team. Any last thoughts, Chris, on what we should be looking at as we move forwards I, I go back again just to say to thank all of those people who have been putting the food on our plates and that's the farmers that's the people who are transporting the people who are manufacturing the people are selling those are absolute heroes and let's look after them in the longer term because we want a food system that delivers the right food, the right nutrition, and we've got to value those people who produce the food itself. So that was Professor Chris Elliott talking to me earlier. Now, to look at what this focus on food security means for land use and the environment, Susan Twining, the CLA's Chief Land Use Policy Advisor, joins me. Susan, welcome to Farmers Guardians Over the Farmgate podcast. Where are you joining us from today? I'm working from home, as is the whole of the CLA. Um, I'm in West Berkshire at the moment. So let's jump in. In amongst the debates about food security and the pandemic, 
There have been um, calls recently to re-examine the agricultural bill and make it more focused on food production. What do you think about that? I can understand where the criticisms have come from. The first version of the agriculture bill didn't have a huge amount um, for the on food on food and food security, but the second version of the bill that we've got now has addressed that to some extent um, with food security as has been included. Um, I think what we have to remember, though, that after the coronavirus coronavirus crisis subsides, the climate emergency and nature crisis will still be here. And we do need to look at producing crops and livestock for food and other markets in an environmentally sustainable way. And we do have to look at look after special habitats and the landscape and the heritage. And we need to look at how land use change can be used to support the climate action. And I think what the bill does is lay the ground for that to happen through payments for public goods that recognise the value of the way that land is managed is, is a benefit to society. I think the bill does go beyond payment for public goods, though, and it does include a lot of support for productivity improvements, which is all about improving the efficiency of farming. And it looks at it's got inclusion, uh, financial assistance for incentives for high animal welfare, support for plant health, and it recognises the value of native livestock breeds and heritage crops. Um, there's also provisions for market interventions and legislation to address fairness in the supply chain. So there is a lot to to help support the farming industry. I think one thing that uh, we would like to change, though, is the, um, the, the start of the transition from direct payments. That is currently due to start in 2021. And we feel, feel that given the delays in this version of the Agriculture Bill and no clarity on when that might change, it would be important to review that starting date. So how do we make sure that we get that balance right then between food and the environment? Because it, it's very much not one or the other, is it? That's correct. Um, there are lots of demands on land, farming, forestry, environmental habitats, housing, industrial use, as well as a backdrop for many tourism and recreational activities. So it's not easy. But production of crops and livestock, primarily for food, is the backbone of the farming industry and the foundation for the UK food sector. So we need to be able to find a way. So it is as much about, I think it's as much about how we farm as what we use the land for. Using farming practices that have a light touch on the environment is going to be critical in the future. And this can be about using traditional farming methods in new ways, but also blending these with new technologies. So in light of all this, should we actually be bringing the national food strategy forward? Because obviously it's been put on pause at the moment while um, the government and parliament deals with the pandemic. But is there actually a case for speeding this up? Uh, yeah, the, the delay in the food strategy is understandable given the, the crisis at the moment, but it shouldn't be paused for long. It has a very wide scope and then and has the power really to pull all pull some very important strands together. So looking at sustainable farming, the resilience of supply chains, how to get safe and affordable food for everyone, and to think about healthy diets. It's an important part of the jigsaw in making everything else work together. And of course, looking further ahead, and another really important part of, of the jigsaw is obviously tackling climate change. So the COP26, which was meant to be held in Glasgow later this year, has obviously been postponed now because of um, the pandemic. 
I guess, you know, there was enormous amounts of energy building up around that and around sustainable food production, whether from the industry or the public or the government. How do we make sure that we don't lose that energy and that focus? I think that's a really good point. And I think what we need to remember is that over the long term, the climate emergency is as serious a threat to people on the planet as the pandemic. And while serious negative impacts are some way in the future, we are already seeing some of the more extreme weather patterns that is affecting farming in the UK and global food production. So as with lockdown for coronavirus, I think there should be no option but to address climate change. And as we come out of the immediate crisis, I'm sure that we'll be starting to look at how we can integrate the policies into into the economic recover, recovery. I think this... The main thing I think this means for me, it it means taking no regret reactions now. Uh, So that's that's not about relying on technological developments for the future. It's about taking action now. And while all sectors have got a role to play um, and we need to be focusing on reducing reliance on fossil fuels, the land use sector has got an important role to play, particularly when we're looking at increasing forestry and woodland cover. But for this to change, there needs to be major government commitment to policies that are going to help this happen. Um, and I think that's where the where the policy development needs to be focusing on as we come out of the, the immediate public health crisis. So what will you be hoping to see from governments as, I guess, as the pandemic progresses, but also as we, as, like you say, as we come out of it? Well, I think when it comes to, I think there's the, the most important thing is to to deal with the immediate crisis. But as we move forward, I think there's there will be continuing disruption in many of the supply chains um, over the, the short and medium term. But as we look into the longer term, we need to be thinking about how how we can um, re, re-establish the economy and grow the economy in a way that um, is true to the the requirements for the for food production and the and food security of the country but doing that in a way that also allows us to address the climate the climate emergency and the nature crisis. And for agriculture, the key to that is the development of the environmental land management scheme in England, which actually we're already very well down the line in development of that, and that will address many of these issues. Um, but we also need to see in ensure that we've got the the right policies to support the food production part of that because what 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 we have seen is that that food is is an is an important part of of our of the mix and we must be able to find that balance between all of the the priorities for our land jess fredenberg there now there have been some wonderfully creative tributes to frontline health workers but i have to say this one really grabbed our attention in the fg newsroom Robert Moss and his partner Emily Stocker, who farm in West Sussex, managed to herd their ewes and lambs to spell out the letters NHS. I was intrigued to find out how they did it and how long it took them. So, Rob, tell me a bit about your farm and, and how you came up with such a fantastic idea. Um, so we're in the middle of, um, in, well, we're in West Sussex, in the middle of Hazemere and Petworth in North Chapel. We're about... 500 acres of grass and cereal crops and we're we're a mixed farm so we've got the cereal crops some beef store cattle and some breeding sheep we've just finished lambing this this last couple of days we've had about 860 odd lambs from about five uh, sorry 480 ewes 
came up with the idea a couple of weeks ago when the whole lockdown sort of really sort of set in and sort of on social media we saw sort of different ideas people come up coming up with to sort of show their appreciation it kind of came to me when i was feeding my animals in the morning that we could kind of do something that's kind of related to the farm but to also show that we're sort of you know we're still thinking of them even though we're sort of in quite a secluded area from everyone else it was quite a big lot of sheep that i was feeding so i had sort of plenty of animals to do what i was doing with and um I had a bit of a play one more and see if I could actually get it to work and I managed to create the end for NHS and it kind of went on from there but I couldn't really do it on my own because feeding that amount, I had 70 sheep in the field and feeding that amount at once, it was quite difficult because they'd sort of swarm in around your feet so that's uh, Emily came to help me out with that. Brilliant. So it sounds like, Emily, you uh, you came to the rescue a bit there. I mean, anyone who knows sheep knows this would have been pretty difficult to do. How did you manage it and, and how long did it take you to, to get them into line? Um, so the morning that Rob came back and um, made the end, I was pretty amused. I was like, how have you done that? And he, he told me that he had meditated and got the sheep into the lines. <laughs> and I was like, I, I was like, really? He's like, no, I just put the food down. Um, where it needed to be, he said, but they just kind of swarmed and nearly knocked them over. So we waited till, well, we wanted them to be on quite nice days so that the scenery was quite bright. Um, so I, all in all, I think it took us um, just over a week, but um, the S was the funniest because one morning we went out together and Rob was like, okay, I'm going to do the S, it's really nice, it's really sunny, and um, Rob forgot how to draw an S. Um, so being a teacher... Um, I found that quite amusing, um, and it yeah turned into a very odd shape um, rather than an S. Um, so then we then had to wait for another couple of mornings um, before we had some nice sunshine again. And um, then Rob sent me with a bag running across the field so the sheep would chase me um, and push me over, so that Rob could um, lay out the food in the S shape so that they would then finally get into position for the S. Um, so yeah, all in all, it was just over a week. Wow, that is a fantastic effort and I'm glad to hear that it, you know, you managed it quite safely as well and that you didn't get injured in the oh, yeah. process. Yeah, no, it, it was really fun and I think actually um, lots of our friends have said their favourite part about it is that with the H in the middle, there's just that one lamb which is like, I'm not conforming, I'm just going to stand here and I'm going to face everyone and I'm not getting into line. Um, so yeah, there's always one that doesn't quite do what you want them to do. Absolutely, and that lamb has become the star of the show, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's always one, isn't there? And you can trust that it would be a sheep that would test your patience and stretch your temper to breaking point. You can see that photo and many more on our website, fginsight.com, and of course on our social media channels, where you can keep in touch with us here at Farmers Guardian and tell us what you'd like to hear on future podcasts. We'll be here again next week, but until then, bye for now, and please stay safe.